All right, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. I'm going to read several verses. This is one of the darkest chapters in the Old Testament. 2 Samuel chapter 11. And it came to pass after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. And it came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself. And the woman was very beautiful to look upon. David sent and inquired after the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her, and she came in unto him, and he lay with her. For she was purified from her uncleanness, and she returned unto her house. And the woman conceived, and sent and told David, and said, I am with child. And David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah was come unto him, David demanded of him how Joab did, and how the people did, and how the war prospered. David said to Uriah, Go down to thy house and wash thy feet. And Uriah departed out of the king's house, and there followed him a mess of meat from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and went not down to his house. And when they had told David, saying, Uriah went not down unto his house, David said unto Uriah, Camest thou not up from thy journey? Why then didst thou not go down into thine house? And Uriah said unto David, The ark and Israel and Judah abide in tents. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go into mine house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As thou livest and as thy soul liveth, I will not do this thing. And David said to Uriah, Tarry here today also, and tomorrow I will let thee depart. So Uriah abode in Jerusalem that day and the morrow. And when David had called him, he did eat and drink before him, and he made him drunk. And at even he went out to lie in his bed with the servants of his Lord, but went not down to his house. And it came to pass in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set ye Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle, and retire ye from him, that he may be smitten and die. And it came to pass, when Joab observed the city, that he assigned Uriah unto a place where he knew that valiant men were. And the men of the city went out and fought with Joab, and there fell some of the people of the servants of David. And Uriah the Hittite died also. Now skip on down to verses 26 and 27. And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah her husband was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when the morning was past, David sent and fetched her to his house. And she became his wife and bare him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. I want you to underline that last phrase. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
Teach us some things about ourselves. Teach us more, Lord, about you. And God, I pray that you would deal with our hearts tonight. And Lord, obviously, I don't know who may be walking down a similar path even right now. It may be in the very type of sin that David did, or it may be in another sin, but still, there are so many truths that are exactly the same. And I pray that you deal with our hearts. Lord, last week, we rejoiced in reading about David's victory over the giant, Goliath. What a victorious time it was. And today, we read about David's greatest defeat, the hands of another giant, but not one that he faced with a spear or with a slingshot, but his own heart. God, I pray that you deal with us tonight and have your perfect will and way in every life. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. What's the problem? Well, I don't have a mic. How about that? You know, as I get older, I do more and more things like this. You know, when you think of David, one of two events probably come to mind. Either David and Goliath or David and Bathsheba. One of the two. In the first, David revealed the fact of his humility. In the second, David revealed the fact of his humanity. In the first, David proved that he was a man of faith. But in the second, David proved that he was a man of flesh. In the first, in Goliath, we are privileged to witness his greatest victory. But in Bathsheba, we are forced to watch his greatest defeat. Do you realize up until this time, David had not lost a battle? He had been victorious in every battle. However, when David entered the arena of combat within his own heart, he was soundly defeated by a giant that was far more powerful than Goliath. So what we're going to do tonight, we're going to recount the defeat of a mighty man of God. Yes, he was a mighty man of God. He was a man that God says was a man after his own heart. But may I say he was not in 2 Samuel chapter 11, a man after God's own heart. This is a sad story. So we need to be aware of the internal giant that we face in life. It's not the giant of sickness. It's not the giant of suffering or sorrow or poverty. It's not the giant of pain or any other external giant that's going to give you some great troubles throughout life. The giant who will cause you the most trouble, though, dwells right here. This is what we have to look after the most. It's why the scripture says that we're to keep our heart with all diligence. For out of it are the issues of life. It obviously has to be kept because the Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. The reality is you don't even know your own heart. And too, too many times... We're so satisfied with ourselves, we don't understand the damage that our heart can do. Many people fear the giants of life. And yet we never stop to think about the worst giant we carry around with us all the time. 
See, this is a story about the giant that defeated David. Not David defeating a giant. Let's examine the facts. First of all, the personality of this giant. We find, notice beginning in verse 1, when the scripture says, And it came to pass that after a year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David, who was David? What was David? He was a king. There was a time when kings went forth to battle. David has fought many battles. As a matter of fact, he's probably been reigning at this time for a few years. He's already won many battles. He won battles when he was fighting for Saul. He had won battles in his own right. I don't know why he doesn't go to the battle. He's king. It was a time when kings went forth to battle. And his servants with him, notice, and sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. Why is he there? He's not in a sinful place. He's simply in the wrong place. It was not sinful to be at the palace. Otherwise, David never would have been able to be there. It was just where he wasn't supposed to be. He was supposed to be at the battle. He's at the wrong place. Do you realize in your service for God, there are places you're supposed to be at certain times. You're supposed to be there. The Bible says, moreover is required in stewards, that a man be found faithful. We need to learn to be faithful to be at the places that we're supposed to be. Because if we don't, we're going to find ourselves in a place of great temptation. At this point, David's not planning on committing immorality. On this point, at this point, David's not planning on murdering one of his most faithful soldiers. As a matter of fact, we learn from 2 Samuel chapter 23 that Uriah was one of David's mighty men. This is a man who had fought battles for David, had stood for David. David, you remember, is the man who thought so much of Saul being God's anointed that even when he had the opportunity, when Saul was trying to kill him, he wouldn't do it. But he so easily devises a plan to put to death a man who would have fought and died for David. This is an amazing story. To understand the nature of a giant, of the giant within him, turn over to 2 Samuel chapter 5. And notice in verse 12, the scripture says, And David perceived that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for his people's sake. And David took him more concubines and wives out of Jerusalem after he was come from Hebron, and there were yet sons and daughters born to David. Now, first of all, God had blessed David. He recognizes the blessings of God in his life. But then David does something. Verse 13 says, David took him more concubines and wives out of Jerusalem. And you might be asking, what's wrong with that? Didn't they do that in the Old Testament? That's not the issue. Matter of fact, all the pagan gods or the pagan kings did that. But God's kings were not to do that. As a matter of fact, turn over to the book of Deuteronomy. 
Deuteronomy chapter 17. And God gave some very clear instruction with regards to kings. Chapter 17, beginning of verse 14. When thou art come unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee and shall possess it, and shall dwell therein, and shall say, I will set a king over me, like as all the nations that are about me. Thou shalt in any wise set him king over thee, whom the Lord thy God shall choose. One from among thy brethren shalt thou set king over thee. Thou mayest not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother. But he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to the end that he should multiply horses, for as much as the Lord has said unto you, ye shall henceforth return no more that way. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that his heart turn not away. Neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. David does all three of those things. He multiplies wives to himself. He multiplies horses. And he multiplies silver and gold. You say, what's wrong with that? He's a rich king. God has blessed him in a great way. He wasn't to multiply these things to himself. I'll tell you what's wrong with it. God said, no. You know, if God's people could get a hold of the things that God says no about and trying to figure out what's wrong with it, the fact that God says no, that ought to be enough for the child of God. That ought to just take care of it. Well, I don't see what's wrong with it. I don't think God cares. I know he didn't consult you before he wrote the book. You could have had a good argument with him then, but this is settled. God's already taken care of this. He's already spelled it out. This is sad that David is not to accumulate horses, wives, gold, and silver. David had honored God's command regarding items number one and three. For a while, David had disabled the horses that were taken in battle in 2 Samuel chapter 8. He had also dedicated the gold and silver taken as battle uh, as spoiled in the battle of the Lord, 2 Samuel chapter 8, verses 7 through 12. But he disregarded God's command concerning wives. Well, this ought to protect him though, shouldn't it? I mean, if he's got a number of wives, that ought to protect him from ever committing adultery. Shouldn't it protect him? It doesn't protect him. As a matter of fact, you find that that makes his sin even worse. David had a giant. And if a name had to be attached to this giant, I think the name that we would give it would be Lust which, of course, is part of the works of the flesh and the works of the heart. It, it appeared that David had strong sexual desires and sought to satisfy his, his desires by accumulating women. But even with the women that he accumulated, it still doesn't keep him from doing what he did. This is pitiful. This is terrible. Yes, David had a problem with lust. David's giant came from within. If you look over at the book of James a moment, James chapter 1, notice beginning in 13, verse 13. He says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I'm tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust 
and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. If you're going to write something out the margin of your Bible, you might write warning. Because this is a warning. Here's David, this man of God, this man after God's own heart. He was good about the horses. He was good about the silver and gold. But he multiplied wives to himself. After all, the kings around them, they all had numbers of wives. By the way, what he only had a few. His son, Solomon, would end up having hundreds. What a horrible example he ended up being to his own children. So David has a giant. David had the problems with a spiritual giant called lust. Therefore, we have to be certain that the inner man is strengthened be in the scripture. That's why it's important. You got to be careful what you watch. I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside. Scripture says, mine eye affecteth my heart because of all the daughters of my city. Now, I want you to get something straight. I know the Lord Jesus Christ said in Matthew chapter 5, if a man looks on a woman and lusts after her, he's committed adultery with her already in his heart. He doesn't say if a man looks at a woman, he's committed adultery with her. It's very important you understand this. I mean, after all, here I am preaching. I see a number of women. Think we should put a veil over all of you. It's not seeing the women that is lusting. Lusting is lust. You can see and appreciate. Be careful about this understanding. So many people have misused that verse in Matthew chapter 5 to think that if they see a female that they're committing adultery. No, it's looking and lusting that is the adulterous part. Understanding that a woman is pretty, guess what? God made him that way. And he tells them to cover up, but he doesn't tell them to ugly themselves up. <laughs> I'm just saying. Say more about that in a minute. <laughs> I, that wasn't even in my notes. I don't know why things like that comes to me. How, how did this giant of lust obtain the power necessary to overcome a man after God's own heart? First of all, in David's part, there was a neglect of duty. He wasn't where he should have been. As king, David should have led his men into battle. Secondly, that his neglect of duty brought about an abundance of idle time. This is one of the dangers, by the way, with vacation. I'm not preaching against vacations, but you better be careful how you spend vacation. Number one, obviously, it needs to be sought after as the will of the Lord, just like any other part of your life. And you should be doing those things that do not feed the flesh, but encourage righteousness and holiness in walk. There is a time to come apart. And as someone has said, either come apart or you will come apart. There are times that you need a break. But that's not to idleness. 
and putting yourself in places that simply feed the flesh. Now, there was another problem, neglect of duty, idle time, and success. I mean, David had enjoyed absolute success, and now here he is. He is a king. I deserve a break today. I want a Whopper with all 38 carbs in every Whopper. That's gotten a lot of people in trouble. You can just fill the arteries filling up as you eat those things. Well, at least they used to be 38 carbs. I don't know if they still are or not. But pride follows success quite often. We begin to think that we are something, something more than what we really are. Let me tell you something. When it comes to serving the Lord, the fact that God even allows us to serve him is an amazing thing. He does not allow us to serve him because we're some great servant. We're just servants. I remind myself a lot. God got along without me long before I came here. He'll get along without me when I'm gone. He's doing just fine. And he gives me the privilege to serve him. I don't want to waste the time. I want it to count for him. It's a privilege. This last preaching conference at Bethel Baptist in Jackson, Tennessee with Brother Savage. He got up and he gave me an introduction. And he said some extremely kind things, just very nice things. And then he said something. He made this statement. He says, as far as I'm concerned, Brother Allison is one of the greatest preachers in America. And he wasn't, when I say he wasn't kidding, he may have been wrong, but he wasn't kidding. He was, I believe he was being sincere. So I got up and I said this. I said, Pastor, I want to thank you for that very kind introduction. But let me say, if I ever get to the place where I believe that, I'm done. We're just like John the Baptist. We're just a voice. That's all we are. Any success that we have, anything that comes out that's a help to other people, listen, that's God. God's doing that. And he could have done it through anything. Hey, he made a donkey talk. He still makes donkeys talk. I know what you're thinking, Brother Todd. I was reading your mind. Shut up, Wally. <laughs> and then on David's part, there was arrogance. David had come to believe his own press. He believed that he was everything the people said he was. And he's rejoicing here in the celebrity status. I got a castle all to myself. I'm king. I can do what I want. And pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. That no doubt led to the neglect of the spiritual man. At this particular point, he's all about one thing. Before he ever gets into a sin here, he's about one thing. He's about himself. He's not doing what's right. He's done some things that God said was not to be done by the king. And now he's put himself in a very dangerous part with his power to do whatever he wants. He's headed for a fall. The power of David's giants is seen in verses 2 through 4. Notice in verse 2, let me go back to it. And it came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed 
and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. And David sent and inquired after the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And now the next verse. He's found out who she is. And David sent messengers and took her. She came in unto him, and he lay with her, for she was purified from her uncleanness, and she returned to her house. What a sad statement. Here's David lying on his bed when he decides to take a walk out on the roof. Probably a patio type of situation that was not uncommon for the palaces where he could look over his domain. The Bible says that her physical appearance was, it says, very beautiful to look upon. And the word very is not used very often in the scripture. All David can think about now is Bathsheba. Boy, does that remind you of a son? Does that remind you of Amnon? Who saw Tamar, his half-sister. And all he could think about was Tamar. Tamar. I've got to have Tamar. Of course, he had one of his family members, Jonadab, who encouraged it, who helped him to scheme to do what he did. I got news for you. You need to understand this. Everybody who has kids, you need to understand. Your kids have got all the potential for the same failings that you have in your life. You say, but my kids were brought up in church. I wasn't brought up in church. But they got the same flesh. And this flesh has exactly the same desires. David was brought up in a home that worshiped God. David had served God. He knew what it was. He should have known this. Never should have happened. But God, he got to thinking more highly of himself. He saw her, he wanted her, and he took her. Lust bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. As a matter of fact, if you think about it, this would take us all the way back to the Garden of Eden. For in the Garden of Eden, you'll remember, Satan came along and says, Can you eat all the trees of the garden? All but one. Gets her thinking about the one. He said, But God said, If we eat it, we'll die. He said, No, you'll not die. God's trying to keep something good from you. Do you realize that everything God tells us know about, it's not because he's trying to keep something good from you. He's trying to keep a whole lot of bad from you. You can trust God. He loves you. And if he says no, it's for a very good reason whether you see it or not. Now, when she repeats the fact that we're not to eat it, neither touch it lest we die... She obviously had a good idea. Now, if you go back and read those passages in Genesis chapter 2 and then Genesis chapter 3, you will find that when God gave the command about not eating of the tree of, uh, good, of the knowledge of good and evil, that he gave that to Adam. Eve wasn't even created yet. That's in verse 15 of chapter 2. It's after that that Eve is created. So I don't have any doubt that Adam told her, we're not to eat of that tree don't touch it. Because if you don't touch it, you won't eat. Oh, that'll save you a whole lot of problems. So just don't eat it. By the way, it was not her eating of it that brought sin and death 
to us all. It was Adam's. Because what she did, she was deceived, according to Second or First Peter, First Timothy chapter two. But Adam was not deceived, being in the transgression. What he did, he did willingly and knowingly. But she went and looked at it. It was a tree that was pleasant to the eyes. It looked good to eat. And I don't know how she came up with the third thing. It looked like something that would make her wise. What does that have to do with anything? God said don't. That should have been enough. If every Christian here could learn, if God says no, make that enough. Trust him. You don't have to do what everybody in the world is doing. God says no. He's right. Get smart. Think. The mind is the first battlefield with the giants of sin. If it falls, the rest of the defense will tumble. That's why it's important that you control your mind. Get control of your mind. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 3, Though we walk after the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. In Proverbs 16, 3, he declares that if we commit our works unto the Lord, our thoughts will be established. It is a battle for the mind. That's why you've got to soak yourself in the word of God. Know what God says in his, in his word. Take your opinion out of it and say, God, you're right. You know, someone has said, God, uh, God said it. I believe it. That settles it for me. Somebody else said, no, God said it. That settles it, period. Your opinion doesn't impress God. If God says no... It's no. In verse 4, it had the power to eclipse his God. Notice in verse 4 of chapter 11, And David sent messengers and took her, and she came in unto him, and he lay with her, for she was purified from her uncleanness, and she returned unto her house. David knew better. He knew better than this. This never should have happened. He's without excuse. He'd been king for a while. He's a man of God. He's a mighty warrior. He's the sweet psalmist of Israel. He's written scripture. He knows better. By the way, when he is finally confronted in chapter 12, his statement right away is, I have sinned. In his psalm, Psalm 51 where he confesses his sin, he says against thee and thee only, have I sinned. He calls it iniquity. He calls it wickedness. He calls it transgression. He calls it sin. He calls it exactly what God calls it. But because he did it, I mean, it's great that he got right with God. But the Bible says, be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. David is going to reap. And he's going to reap for years because of his sin. To whom much is given, much shall be required. But David has forgotten his relationship with God at this point in verse 4. The giant of lust has blinded him to the point where David has become a practical atheist. He's not an atheist, 
but he's become a practical atheist. What he's doing, he's doing as though God doesn't notice. And yet in Psalm 139, he makes it very plain. Thou hast known me. He says, you know the words of my mouth, in my tongue, even before I say them. God knows everything about him. You read Psalm 139, and he makes it plain. He knew God. Then why is he doing what he's doing? Why indeed? We could be like our kids and say, oh, no. But the thing is, you do know. You do know. And you are without excuse. David enjoyed the pleasures of an illicit affair. You say, how in the world? He's got all these wives. What on earth? And, and I'm sure that they were not from the dregs of society. I'm sure that these were beautiful women that he had married. Then what is different about this one? Here it is. Stolen waters are sweet and bread eaten in secret, place, in secret is pleasant. Proverbs 9, 17. You wonder what on earth could make it so that any man would even consider ever cheating. God says, stolen waters are sweet. But the end of that is bitterness and death. David paid for his moment of pleasure with a lifetime of pain. And anybody who is naive enough to think that somehow they can get away with it, you're just kidding yourselves to your own ruin. Because this is what happens. It happens in David's life. That's why it's so vitally important that the giants we fight be defeated when they first appear. That we don't give place to it. We don't play around with sin. Be careful how you look at others. David should have had a number of things that told him he was in the wrong place. Number one, he knew it. It was the time when kings went forth to battle. He knew it. As soon as he saw her. That should have been a time not to call his servants and say, go get her for me. That should have been a time. As soon as he saw that and he had that tinge in his heart, he should have said to his servants, get my chariot. Get me out of here. Hey, you look at Joseph in the book of Genesis. When Potiphar was making eyes at him, he said, how could I sin so great sin against God? And he fled. Man, you just run. The impact of sin. By the way, there's a side lesson here as well that you ladies need to understand. Do you realize there's a number of reasons why God tells the ladies that they're to be modest? One is to protect the men. You say, I don't know why men are just such dogs about this kind of stuff. I'll tell you why. It goes back to Genesis chapter 3. The eye gate is a very powerful gate to the heart. When he tells us to keep our heart with all diligence, the next verse deals with the tongue. The verse after that deals with the eyes. The truth is, ladies, there's just things about you that no one should see but your husband. And what everybody sees should be very modest, showing according to 1 Peter chapter 3, the hidden man of the heart. If you want to be considered a godly lady, dress like a godly lady would dress. And when it comes to your own husband, man, listen, the marriage bed is undefiled in all. That's Hebrews chapter 13. 
but adulterers and whoremongers God will judge. Judge, address to protect men from having thoughts they shouldn't have. Now, some are so lost in wickedness, they can't look at a female anytime without being in sin. But it doesn't have to be that way. People dress right, act right, make sure they guard their own hearts. Well, anyway, let's move on. Verses 5 through 27, we'll not read all the verses, but the problem with David's giant, verses 5 through 13, it led him down a deceptive path. He tries to deceive in hopes of getting away with it. He brings Uriah back. If Uriah will go into his wife, people will think the child is his, and uh, that will be enough. It'll be taken care of. So he comes up with an elaborate plan. It's amazing the planning that people will do to try to get away with sin. David, the man of God, is doing this. He's acting like a, like a little kid that's done something wrong and he's trying to hide it. But God's way is openness and honesty. Proverbs 28, 13, He that covereth his sin shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh it shall have mercy. It's not what David does. It's a deceptive path. Not only that, in verses 14 through 25 It led him down a deepening path. It only got worse. Here he wouldn't touch Saul, but now he's willing to put a faithful servant to death. Not because the servant had done a thing wrong. His servant was willing to die for his king. David, at this particular point, he is every bit as bad as Saul. This is pitiful. This is horrible. This is a dark chapter. It led him down a devastating path. He takes her for his wife. The folks can count and the thinking person can figure out at least part of what happened. And David, at this point, and until the prophet comes to him, shows no remorse. Now, we know from Psalm 32 and Psalm 35 that even though he was on the throne, his relationship was definitely hindered now with God. For you remember in Psalm 51, he prays, Lord, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. His joy was gone. He's still sitting on the throne. He's still making his edicts. He's still ruling. But man, God is seeing to it that he's not enjoying what God has given him. Interesting to note in verse 27 that it says, David sent and fetched her. This is the second time that the scripture mentions David fetching someone to his house. The other time was back in 2 Samuel chapter 9 with Mephibosheth, the son of, uh, of Jonathan, his best friend. This is what sin does. It sears the conscience, making sin easier and easier until the entire life is devastated and destroyed. That's what sin does. It dulls you. You know, Satan never shows his cards. He never tells you about the worm hidden in the middle of his apple. He never tells the drunk that drink will destroy his life, destroy his family, destroy his, his uh, vocation and all that he is. He never tells them. Satan just doesn't do that. He dresses it up in the commercials as looking like something really good and fun to do. And so just drink, drink, drink. He never tells the fornicator or idolater that their sexual activities may lead to a number of things, unwanted children, disease, death, loss of respect. 
Listen, but that's what sin does. Our world lives by that. I am absolutely shocked today of the number of gender reveals parties for couples who aren't even married. Like this is something to be proud of. There's nothing to be proud of with that. Marriage is honorable and all, and the bed undefiled, but adulterers and whoremongers, God will judge. Man, that's not a time for rejoicing then. They ought to be ashamed that they've been caught in their sin. But today, we call evil good and good evil. How wicked can you get? He never tells the drug user that his habit will control him forever. He never tells the truth about sin. That's the devil. But sin bringeth forth death. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. Galatians chapter 6, be not deceived. God is not mocked whatsoever a man soweth. That shall he also reap. That's a sad place to leave David. I mean, the last part of verse 27 hangs over the whole chapter like a funeral, Paul. Notice again, it says here in chapter 11, verse 27, right at the end, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. David's not fooled anybody, least of all God. God knows. Heard about a preacher that saw a man walking down the street. There was a brothel on the other side of the street, and he saw the man look around, look to the side, look back across the street. The preacher yelled out, hey, look up. God sees you. God sees what you do in the middle of the night. He sees what you do at 3 o'clock in the morning. You can't go on a TDY trip far enough to get away from God seeing what you've got going on. But this is not the end of the story. Because we know a number of things took place. Number one, the enemies of God blasphemed God. When I was a student at Tennessee Temple, there was a story that was printed in the Chattanooga News Free Press. Evidently, there was a student at the school. This would have been in about 1974, maybe 1975. There was a, there was a student at Tennessee Temple who had gotten a hold of some human bones, real human bones. Of course, the police came out and checked it out, had to go through forensics and everything. This was a major story. What made it a major story? Because it was a student at Tennessee Temple who had done it. It says, I heard somebody remark one time that what David did once, the king of Moab did every day. It's common with him. But because you're a Christian... Your testimony is to make a difference for God, not to get people to blaspheme your God. But it doesn't even end with that. The baby dies. David's oldest son, Amnon, rapes his half-sister, Tamar. Absalom, Tamar's full brother, murders Amnon. Absalom then rebels against David after a couple of years, after stealing the hearts of the men of Israel. 
He runs David off the throne, shames him before everybody. And then Absalom is killed by Joab. I believe God forgave David. But please understand, you can get forgiveness. But it doesn't stop the reaping. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. I'm sure David liked to have had Amnon back. I'm sure he wished that there was some way possible that he could have restored the virtue of Tamar. Can't happen. He'd like to have Absalom back and obviously have a good relationship with Absalom. But no, that body now is put under a bunch of stones, dead. And David remembers his time sitting at the gates of the city when the messengers come. Then putting his head in his hands saying, Oh, Absalom, Absalom, my son. Would to God I died for thee. And you've heard me say it a bunch of times. Every time I read it, I think, David, you didn't have to die for that boy. All you had to do was keep Bathsheba out of your bedroom. And that boy would still be alive. Tamar would still be pure. Amnon would still be alive too. And the enemies of God would not be blaspheming your God because of your actions. David, you brought it all on yourself. He should do, and he did, by the way, what I believe people should do when they commit this type of sin. Now is not the time to make them feel good. You notice God doesn't come along and say, Hey, David, I know you've had a hard time. I know it's tough being king. I know you've got people that want to kill you, and I know that you've got, you've got nations that want to take you over, and you've got all these rulings that you have to make people coming by all the time. David, you need a rest. That's not how God deals with them. I've told numbers of people over the years, what you need to do now is eat dirt. You just need to eat dirt. You need to get honest about what you did and what you are. And you just eat dirt. Don't you make excuses. Don't you go out of my office making excuses. You got no business making excuses. You did it. He said, preacher, that's hard. Well, hey, what they did was hard. What they did hurt a lot of people. They need to eat dirt. And when it's brought up, I'm sorry. I did wrong. I sin. And be a warning to others so they don't do it as well. David reaps now. Forgiven, but he reaps. We have a great God who will forgive our sin. But he warned us, didn't he? He's warned us about a lot of things in the scripture. And we've got especially a lot of young theologians today who have figured out that God didn't mean what he said in the word of God. And that somehow it'll be different for them. They're tired of that old funny fundamentalism that takes God at his word. But I'll tell you, you taking God at his word will save you a lifetime of heartache and regret. Because God knows best. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is a sad scene. It hurts even to go through it. A man of God who messed up. Man of God who could defeat giant Goliath, but couldn't defeat the giant of lust in his own heart. Lord, I pray tonight this should be a warning. There may be someone tonight 
that they know they need to get things right with God. May they do it. May they do it. So many other lessons that we cover tonight. Use that to deal with our hearts. May you use the message tonight to keep some people from sin and a lifetime of hurt and regret. Please, dear God, bless in the invitation, I pray. In Jesus' name.